0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now it just... The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: We come back to John the Baptist. This is one of his last appearances before the Gospel of John ends, and in it we see a challenge that he's facing. And it's coming not from people outside, but rather his own disciples, people who are his friends, people who are following him and wanting to be alongside him. And the challenge that comes is this idea of popularity and fame and envy. See, the thing about popularity is that it so often creates resentment and envy. It creates it on those who are popular as well as those who want to be popular. In our passage today, we see the same thing from John's disciples. They're becoming angry because Jesus is sort of trying to take the mantle of baptism away. No, this is John the Baptist, not Jesus the Baptist. And so they're a little frustrated And John was slowly losing disciples to Jesus. Were they angry on behalf of John? Possibly. But certainly they were as well resentful themselves. And they didn't want John to lose fame because then they would lose fame and influence as well. But this story isn't necessarily about pride and fame and popularity. It's essentially about faith we've been covering this topic of faith for the past few messages. And what it means to actually believe to the very end, to have what I would describe as finishing faith, the one who makes it through to the end. How does one do that? John's response is really the key. It shows us a faith that not only responds to John's own disciples, but it gives us a bigger and broader picture, a perspective of faith that is required for us to have in order for us to see what it means to finish the race to the end, to get to the very end. And as verse 24 says that for John, that meant prison and eventual death. So what we're going to do is look at three principles of John's finishing faith. First, the true priorities that are necessary to have in order to finish faith in verses 22 to 28. Second, is lasting, perseverant trust in verse 27. And then third is the result or effect of this type of faith, which is complete joy in verses 28 through 30. So first, let's look at these priorities in verses 22 to 28. And I'm gonna skip down and specifically focus on verse 26. And in verse 26, John records for us, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. If we listen and look at these words from John's disciples, they're not only envious of what Jesus is doing, they were trying to get John to be envious as well. It wasn't enough that they felt a certain way. They wanted John, their master, their teacher, their rabbi to do the same. And let's assume that they really did care for John, which I think is true. But there's also this mixture, as we constantly see about this type of faith, is that there's a mixture as well of sin, of an envious, rivalrous heart that is really destructive for one's own soul. There are so many different contexts where we see this taking place. In my sphere, in ministry, in church planting, I tell you that, one temptation of every person who plants a church as a pastor is always tempted by this idea of the rivalry envy factor. It's as soon as you plant a church, you become the new game in town, the new kid on the block. And everyone wants to check it out and scope it out and say, what is it? I want to go there. And that really lasts for maybe one year, maybe less until the next happening church plant comes along that has maybe better music, better preaching, better programs. And suddenly everyone shifts over to that group. And so it's the temptation of every single person in ministry, pastor, church planter, to have envy and rivalry, even in something as kingdom focused as the church. So often we want the success of others, not because we really care about the person, but maybe deep in the secret part of our hearts by seeing the success of someone else, we also gain success. And again, it's not that we don't care for the person. There's a lot of times mixed motive behind this. We truly care for the person, as well as we want the success of someone because it looks good on us. And I can't think of a more prime example than children. I mean, it's, it's sort of the nature of a family, especially, especially in our area, which is that we want our children to do well for themselves, yes, if we're honest, but if we're also honest, maybe to do a little internal boasting inside of our souls, to want our children to succeed in all areas of life, in athletic competitions, in the arts, in dance, in music, It doesn't matter what it is, you know, it's like, no matter what you put your kids into, when they're two years old, they're in a little arts and crafts class, they bring their little presentation to you, and you can't help but look at everyone else's presentation. Two year old presentations, three year olds, four years old, they're all just finger painting. But you want your child to have the best finger painting possible. And it doesn't matter that much. Until you look at everyone else's and you see everyone else is so much better, and you think, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" Right? If it was just on their own, it wouldn't. It would be beautiful. Until you see everyone else's is so much better, and suddenly you think something's wrong with my child, or yours is. Their their finger paint is so much better that you say, "I have a gifted child. <laughs> my child is talented," and so therefore you. You start showing your parents, I think I have a future Picasso, a Van Gogh in my family. And so the next thing you do, you say, you know what, that finger painting class that was by the rec center of your town, you need to find a private tutor because this person is so much more gifted than just going to a rec center art class. It's just the nature of the way that our hearts are conditioned to be, which is We are rivalrous and envious in our souls. Why is it that we struggle so much when our child does not get playing time, but they are clearly the best on the team? (laughs) And we yell at the coach and we email the coach and we email everyone possible and we say, you're not treating my future Steph Curry right. My future Messi is not being treated in the way that they should be. The reason why that's there is because it says something about me. Because I can boast in my child, in their successes. But I also get angry when they don't succeed, when they're not learning as fast enough, when the learning curve has slowly dropped off. And what was initially genius becomes nothing but the ordinary. And we don't like ordinary, because ordinary speaks not of them, but of me, of my failure. This is the heart of John's disciples. They're looking, saying, John, you are the baptizer. All these crowds, they were coming to you. You don't wanna surrender that to Jesus. It's, it's really, you're gonna lose notoriety. Why do they care that much? Because it says something, not just about John, but about themselves. That's the same heart. We want our children to be praised because it says something about us and we don't want them to be criticized because it says something about us. Also, do you ever feel that when smart people who totally would be successful but choose a lesser path of success, there's a sense in our souls that says they're wasting their talents and gifts because choosing the lesser road is should be only the case for those who have lesser skills. But if you, who are perhaps up for a promotion at work, and you so decide not to take it, because even though if you take it, there's a promotion of title, there's a promotion of prestige, there's a promotion of more money, more experience, more power, but you decide not to take it, because actually by taking that promotion, you're gonna spend less time shepherding and caring for your family. You're gonna spend less time with opportunities of ministry and kingdom focus. And so you intentionally decide not to take that promotion. Get ready to hear criticism from somebody at work, from friends, from your parents. Someone is going to say, what are you doing? You're wasting your talents and gifts. Now, I'm not talking about laziness. I'm talking about the excellent person who intentionally decides to take a lesser road of self personal glory for the sake of Christ's glory? It's a really hard task to do that, but it says so much about the person they have fixed their eyes on. When we went to Burundi and we encountered those doctors, those six doctors, medical students go to Burundi, and you know, it's very possible that some would see these doctors who, if they were living in our area and were coming to our church, they would say, wow, these are great men and women because they love Jesus and they're so smart. And they get to be at sort of the upper echelons of personal prestige. But here you have these six doctors and especially their families, their wives, their husbands, their children, who are clearly not being raised with the same level of education that they were raised under. And it's easy to criticize them. You might not, we might not outright, but maybe in our hearts you say, and especially if you go there and you see their children don't have access to things that we have access to here. And so it's easy to criticize in our hearts and say, oh, I I think they're really giving up so much and getting back so little. That's the reality of this idea of wasting your gifts when it comes to the Lord. When you follow Christ, the instinct is going to think, well, why wouldn't you pursue the greatest roads? Why would you cause yourself and your loved ones to suffer for following Christ? Last week, I told you that some of you as parents, you're going to be facing crossroads all throughout your life in your parenting. And those decisions that you make along the way, from the youngest of ages all the way up to really until, until death do you part, you might say, there will be a time where you're going to be asked the question, do you trust in Christ as king over your children or are you the king over your children? Are you trying to put a mirror so that when you see your children and all their glory and splendor, it says so much about you and your significance and value? to choose the road that is as we sing about in songs such as blessed be the name of the Lord that the road of Christ is marked with suffering. And when you intentionally decide to not pursue the excellence and the MVPism of basketball or baseball or golf or dance or theater or art or music or whatever the list is endless and you say, I'm not gonna intentionally go down that road. I'm not gonna invest in everything into this person in this road. When we do that, what we're doing is we're actually choosing a road marked with suffering. Now it's not suffering in, there's always relative suffering. But it is something to do, the, to act upon the idea that Christ is king over my life, not my child's life, mine. And by doing that, I intentionally choose a road that is not necessarily, in the world's eyes, the greatest, most successful route possible. If we choose this route, get ready for questions, for questioning your wisdom, your love, your stewardship. Mary, when she had this incredibly expensive, ointment, this nard, and she breaks it and pours it, the oil on Jesus' head and his feet. This nard is so expensive that it would have been something you would pass down generation to generation. It would have been something that you use so sparingly, you want to make it last because just even a dab was valuable. And for those of you who perhaps have expensive colognes or perfumes or ointments, moisturizers, how many of you take just a little dab and just dab it on cuz you want to keep that thing going till as long as possible cuz it's expensive. For Mary, this was a year's worth of wages, a year's worth. And again, it was valuable. And so she breaks it on Jesus and it's poured out on him. And Someone like Judas comes along and says, what are you doing? Why this waste? You, you could have spent it on the poor. And of course, he didn't really care about the poor. But the question of why this waste over something that was so valuable, why would you do that? There are so many better ways to spend that. And Jesus said, do not bother her. This is for my burial. She's worshiping me. She's trusting me. She's giving her life to me. And Jesus' point is, I'll be there for her. There's no amount of money or resource or talent that you are holding and clinging on to for especially whoever you are, whether you are a student, high school student, parent, wherever you are in your stage of life, there's something that you're holding on to. You're saving up, you're treasuring, you're saying, I'm waiting for the right time so that I could, Bless, but bless for whom? For your own glory, for the Lord's. And for the person who says, Lord, I pour it out on you. I give you everything. I surrender it all. He will not fail you. He might not bless you in the way you think it will be, but he will certainly not fail you. He has your life in his hands, and he's proven it secure by the work of that he would do that we're gonna celebrate coming this week. And that deposit is what Paul describes as a guarantee through his spirit. It's a guarantee. It makes certain that you are not wasting your life. I feel sorry for those who believe that that they're trying to live their dreams through someone else, their significance and worth, because that is a road marked with suffering, truly a depressive road. We've heard many stories of missionaries like Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, John Chow, who only was killed about a few years ago. They all had the same story. They all went to an island to share the gospel of Christ. And literally as soon as they got off the boats, they went on the, the beach shore and all of them were killed by spears or arrows. And the whole world always asks the question, Why this waste? But if you know anything about the gospel of Christ, you know that Jesus too was asked that same essential question when he hung on that cross and he was alone and everyone left except for his mother, John the disciple and some women and that's it. Everyone else was gone. Was it all a waste? Was his life of three years of ministry and teaching and healing, was it all a waste? If you can say with assurance, the answer is no. It was not a waste. Then you should be able to say that about your life. When you hand over every, and again, I speak to you who are parents, you bring your child into the world. You see that child as a baby. You have all sorts of expectations and dreams. But if those dreams are limited to ribbons and trophies that one day will collect dust, and when you're taking your last breaths, you will not be thinking, wow, the MVB trophy of my son and my daughter. So great, that last second you know, grand slam that tied it up. It really won't matter. What will matter is, are they following Christ? Are they walking with him? And that is something that we are living right now today by your decisions. Is there a place for ambition? I know you're asking that question, but Sam, you can't be saying there's no place to trying hard and ambition. There is a place. But the goal of that ambition is really the key. Because the Lord shows us many places where we should, do all things with zeal and passion, perseverance, hard work, labor, but why are we working hard? Why are we laborious? If it is the end goal of maybe getting to, if you're a student and you're thinking, I want to have this career, but if it's, I want that career so that I can be glorified, then that's a road that is deadly. If it's a road that says, I want this career so that everything will be worked out so that I'll have plenty of resources to live and prosperous and comfortable, you're going to be left empty. And if you're a husband or a wife and you're looking to the other as the end goal, that's an empty road. Parents, empty road. No, I really appreciate the way Pastor Richard Phillips describes how we should have ambition, what this looks like. But this is a far cry from the selfish ambition more natural to us. We tend to be most concerned with our reputation and well being. This is where our envy and strife come from. We want to be glorified and admired. Otherwise, why would we worry that others are more prominent than we are? We want to acquire high position and riches and worldly luxuries. If not, then why are we so anxious when these things are threatened? If we are anxious over what we do not have, if we are envious, then it really does reveal that our ambition is not godly ambition, but selfish ambition. And it is God's kindness that we don't always get what we want. If you are pursuing the utmost earthly goals for your child, if they were to get that, but then lose their soul, would that be something you would be happy over? You might say no, but maybe when you're actually living it and they get to the most elite schools and then get to a certain job and career and marrying, but they're not walking with the Lord, I tell you again and again, that is a road marked with suffering and misery. It is not how we must live. That is selfish ambition. And the way you know it's selfish is that we're always worried. We're always afraid. There's fear marked with it. If you are living for your own selfish ambition, you will not finish this race of faith. The reason is because they run contrary to one another. Faith and selfish ambition are exactly on opposite poles. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 5 says this, Do not do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So if I'm doing the finger painting with my child, four years old, I'm praising in my heart everyone else's finger painting, and I mean it, (laughs) you know? I'm not looking to compare. The comparative aspect of it is how you know selfish ambition is just covering your soul. It's cancerous to your soul. And when we're angry that our child strikes out to make the last at-bat, and we're frustrated? Well, that's probably because of selfish ambition. There's all these little markers that show us worry, anxiety, fear. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then that's when it goes, who, being God, emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the form of a slave, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The point is that if you look, there's a contrast between selfish ambition and Christ. So if you're on the road to selfish ambition, the opposite of knowing Christ happens. You just can't have both concurrently. And this is a real danger to our souls, is that the more you are pressing forward to that end, the more you will turn away from Christ you won't find the things of the Lord satisfying. It won't be enough for you. Lasting trust is a second principle that we get from what we see through John and his disciples. John in verse 27 answers his disciples this way. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from him from heaven. You know, the answer that John has to this envy is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. That is to say that God from heaven gives whatever we have, everything it's from him. This is not just some random stance happening over our lives. But if you really trust him, you really believe and see God actively engaged in what he's doing. And that's what John has. And it protects him from this selfish ambition. John's trust was rooted not in ministry results, how many people were coming to be baptized. In these metrics, his trust was not in the methodology. Maybe if I move locations of the, where I'm baptizing on the river, more people will come. Maybe he did a demographic study and found out that more people where Jesus is at wants to be baptized. So maybe he needs to switch locations, switch his messaging. Trying to free- that's not how it works but it's our instinct. For John, he believed that whatever he had was directly from the Lord, from God himself, and that no blessing, no skill, no talent, no ability happens outside of God's sovereignty. It also means that whatever gifts he had, it had to be used for God's glory and purposes. And once it veered away towards selfish ambition, then we lose sight of God's sovereignty. Then it becomes, you know why? The more we think about it as our gifts and talents, the more than we try harder to shape what happens in our lives. And again, it's not to say that we don't try, but it's what is the end purpose of our trying our efforts? Is it God's glory or my own personal glory? And the person who is actually wrestling with that is probably living in God's glory, meaning, We're all mixed in this. We all have our sinful heart. We all want to pursue Christ if we're in Christ. But we should always be asking this question. Am I doing this for my own selfish ambition or is it truly for God's glory? That should be a question you're asking about promotions, about job relocations, about how you're parenting your children, about how your marriage is, about your ministry, about pastoring, anything. Anything. It should be, am I doing this for God's glory truly or my own selfish ambition? And if you're honest with yourself, and maybe if you rope in a few people around you and they start giving you answers, you do get a little bit of a better idea. So the person of faith is willing to ask that question. The person without faith doesn't even ask. You know why? Because they don't wanna hear, maybe it really is selfish ambition. and We just want that. Like the prodigal son, I just want to go, I just want it my way. Jay Bridges tells of the time his friend who was a chaplain in the military confronted his boss. His boss was a senior chaplain. This senior chaplain was involved in an illegal act and you can imagine if your boss was doing something unethical and you were wrestling with should I confront him, the repercussions of that confrontation could be great. And so for this chaplain, it was great. Jerry uh, tells a story that basically the senior chaplain wrote an, an unjust letter to get this person fired and released and it ruined his friend's career. So Jerry asked his friends, was this friend, was this just a victim of revenge? Was he a victim of revenge? And his answer was surprisingly no. Because he said that no letter, no person can ruin a career unless God permits it and has a purpose for it. Do you have that type of faith in God's sovereignty? That whatever happens to you, even unjust happenings in your life, which will happen, live long enough, and they do, can you believe that God is permitting this ultimately, even for your good, even though it has Sometimes really difficult consequences. Yesterday I was taking a nap, and um, I slept for about. I had a bad night of sleep beforehand, so I was really tired. Slept for about five minutes, and then suddenly my daughter comes into my room and wakes me up with the phone and says, "You know, she says uh, something's happened to Sarah, my second daughter. My second daughter, and now and she's in Pennsylvania, so I was." sort of, you know, when you're, uh, sleeping and suddenly something like that happens, you go, <gasps> what happened? What happened? And then, so she says, she, she put my aunt, someone who was telling me that they had, uh, heard that something happened to my daughter who, because they were the emergency contact of this person. So I was along and she was in a car accident. Things were really bad. So I tried calling her and no answer. I looked at, I have sort of a, our family is sort of like a, one of those, you know, life 360 loca- locators, and it was just off. And so, I'm, suddenly, I'm starting to worry, thinking about this. And then I text her and say, "Is everything okay?" And she says, "I was just sorry I haven't called you in a while. I've been busy in meetings, you know." And then I said, "Okay, good." So I finally was able to reach her, and we talked, and you know, it was fine. But. More than anything else, it started getting me on this road of, what if something really did happen? What if she was seriously injured? What if she was killed? Would I really still believe in God's sovereignty? I always think these are, those little little dress rehearsals, you might say, of emergencies and bad things happening, we should always take them seriously. We should ask the question, can I trust God with even the worst things that can happen to me, and even trust that they are for my ultimate good and his purposes, which are not fully understood, but I still trust that he is good. If you've never read Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, I really invite you to do so. its I believe it's his best book. And not only that, I actually think it has served me time and time again in my life. But I wanna quote a few things that he's written in this book. He says, God is in control but in his control, he allows us to experience pain. The pain is very real. We hurt, we suffer. But in the midst of our suffering, we must believe that God is in control, that he is sovereign. John's whole life was this. It was God's in control, I know it. Jesus's life was this. He went to that cross, He would go through this, and it was, he did not go to the cross because of Judas Iscariot or Pontius Pilate. There's no way he would have been crucified. He even said, I could call down legions of angels. One angel would destroy the whole earth, let alone legions. No, he went to that cross because he permitted himself to go to that cross. And we see this in John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down again. I have authority to take it up again. Jesus never felt like going to the cross. Gethsemane shows us that Jesus did not feel like going to that cross, but he trusted God in his sovereign plan. And despite the agony of that cross, he would go to it because he believed everything that his father was. And so too, I want to quote Jerry Bridges one more time. He says, when we trust in God's sovereignty, we will respond the same way that John the Baptist does here and Jesus does here. Trusting God is not a matter of my feelings, but of my will. I never feel like trusting God when adversity strikes, but I can choose to do so even when I don't feel like it that act of the will though must be based on belief and belief must be based on truth we are in a week's time celebrating the truth we christians we don't believe that the resurrection is simply a mythical experience some sort of time frame where you get to feel good about jesus we believe in a historical fact and reality that Christ rose from the grave. In fact, we believe if the bones of Christ were found and there was a DNA to tie, tie into the fact that Jesus did not rise from the grave, then our faith, as Paul says, would be futile, and we would be the mo- we should and are the most pitied of all people in all the world. But we believe in a truth a historical fact, or reality. We believe that our minds, as we've been speaking of in believing, must be engaged, but that engagement of mind is not enough. It has to sink into our soul. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts so that it isn't foolishness and, and mythology, but it's truth that engages our hearts and minds and causes us as an outflow to live out this faith and even to suffer for the sake of Christ, not because we feel it, but because we believe it to be true, because of the fact that it's true. So it is this truth, this historical factual reality of Christ rising from the grave that we have lasting trust and faith in him, in his sovereignty. If he can do that, he has my life taken care of. That's how we trust God and the outflow of this is verses 28 through 30, complete joy. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We focus a lot on verse 30 because that's really important as a expression of our humility and our hope in Christ. But it's verses 22 to 29 that shows why we can actually believe that I must decrease and he must increase. And what John is saying is, I'm not the Christ, I'm the friend of the groom, the bridegroom. uh, This past week ago, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding and one thing I, always notice of when I look at, because I get that unique angle that most people don't get at weddings, which is you see everyone's faces. You see the bride and groom. You see the groomsmen. You see the bridesmaids. You see everyone's faces. And one thing, when I look over at the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, but the groomsmen, they're always smiling, unless they're about to faint (laughs) because they lock their knees. But otherwise, they're generally smiling. They're really happy. I have yet to see... Uh, anyone angry they would be angry though if, if a few things were to be true first if they wished ill on their quote so called friend because they really didn't like him now I have yet to meet a groomsman that despised the groom I have yet to meet a groomsman who was so envious by the fact that the bride and groom were together Now, it could happen, (laughs) but I haven't experienced that myself. Usually, the best man is so happy that this groom is marrying his bride. I have yet to see someone who is hiding in their heart this despising of this man and someone who's so angry that he's getting married and someone who's so angry that he's getting married and he's not married, unless you're really... uh, dark in person. It it just doesn't happen too often. Basically, there's no instance where a dear friend, a a best man, is just down and downcast and angry at the groom because he's getting married. John's point is that what is able to get him to overcome the temptation of rivalry and envy, feeling sorry for himself, self-pity? These are things that really cause so much discouragement in our world. So much depression and heartache is we don't get what we want. This is James chapter four or five. We don't get what we want. We don't, we're angry that everyone else has gotten something and we haven't. We're self-pitying in that process. We're jealous, frustrated, embittered. It's what the disciples, his disciples were like, They were angry that Jesus was getting the disciples. But John says here that he's not angry because he was rejoicing over the bridegroom. That joy that you have when you see this man finally marrying his bride. And in Jesus' day, the bridegroom's friend, the best man, he was was the wedding coordinator. He was in charge of everything. And just to let you know, weddings in Jesus' day took three days. Now, my wedding took, I I think my wedding was around 12 hours. It was painfully long. I mean, our wedding ceremony was two and a half hours. Two and a half hours of standing there. That's why I try to make my sermons now less and less to like, usually trying to truncate it down to 30 minutes because it's, it was so long. Well, Jewish weddings were three days, and the bride, uh, the, the ma- uh, best man, he was in charge of planning the wedding. So imagine being best man and the wedding coordinator. Why did he do that? Because he loved his friend. He deeply loved his friend. He was willing to do whatever it took to make his friend shine because he so dearly loved him. And that's John's point here is when you love this person, you don't feel envy and jealousy. You feel ecstatic that he's here. There's so much joy. As John says, the joy is complete. And with that complete joy, with so much anticipation, you say, I'm so happy. The reality is that we feel so much envy and jealousy and discontentment and frustration and anxiety and anger in this world because we want what other people have and we don't have it. And we don't see Christ as someone we desire and want. But the reality is he's the only one who satisfies you, completes your joy. Nothing else in this world can do that except him. The more you press and pursue anything other than Christ, ultimately, the more dissatisfied you will be. And you will plug that hole with every single thing. But like a dam, that cannot be held as all the cracks slowly start happening, eventually that dam will burst and the dam of misery floods your soul. Emptiness. But it is exactly the opposite with Christ. We're gonna close um, with communion and Easter as reminders that to choose Christ is better than everything else. We're gonna, Teresa's gonna sing a song for us during communion. It's an old, old song by George Beverly Shea, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Some of you know that song. And to me, that's just the sentiment that John had. I'd rather have anything. I, I'd rather not have every, everything else if I have Christ. Christ is everything to me. And then we're gonna close with a song that says, all I have is Christ. That's who we want. And it's not have Jesus and you're, your life's going to be miserable, but, but like John, if you have Christ, your joy is complete. You will experience it. You will see that God will never let you down, but you do have to trust him. And it is that trust that allows us to finish well. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there is nothing in this world that satisfies us as Jesus, you do but yet we still try to, and we still buy into that lie. And by doing so, there's so much disappointment, and discouragement, self-pity, depression, sorrows, emptiness, loneliness. And when we go down that road, when we're trying to prove ourselves to our parents, to our coworkers, to our managers, to the world, to our husbands and wives, we are so miserable, you have so much more for us than that. May we choose you, O Lord, today to follow you. Help us to leave behind our selfish ambitions which lead us nowhere. It's vain conceit, but to have the ambition of following Christ, making that our greatest zeal and passion. You will satisfy us in ways that we can never get anywhere in any way else other than through Christ. So we thank you, Father. And we ask that as we take this communion, help us to remember this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.